is positive, not because of what it spits out at the end, you know, not because of its message, but because of the way it proceeds. You know, if a, if a work of art is overflowing with energy and with human life, and it's been beautifully organized to contain that energy and present it, that, that's actually what sends us out of the theater or out of the book happy. You just heard the voice of the American author, George Saunders, who is my guest on the episode of How to Proceed. My name is Lynn Ullman, and together with the House of Literature in Oslo, I've created the podcast How to Proceed, where we engage writers from around the world to reflect upon reading and writing, art and creativity, and the world we live in right now, in the historic year 2020. Is the loss of literature a political force? Yes, says George Saunders. In this episode, he talks about Trump, civility, and the public discourse of our time, on kindness and meanness, on form and revision, voice, memory, and empathy, and, of course, about the living and the dead. George Saunders is one of the most influential writers of our time. He is a veteran teacher of the craft, currently teaching at Syracuse University. He has received numerous awards, the MacArthur and Guggenheim Fellowships, the Penn Malamud Prize for Excellence in the Short Story, And he is the author of 11 books, including the short story collections Pastoralia and 10th of December. And in 2017, he published a Man Booker winning novel, Lincoln in the Bardo. About which I'll say, anyone interested in how fiction works and why it's more relevant than ever should turn to read this novel. I just reread it and it blew me away. George Saunders was one of the first authors who we invited to this podcast, not just because he renews the short and the long form, not just because of his nonfiction, always relevant, but because his human gritty realism and slightly nutty work resonates in some ways with the absurd times we live in. As he himself has put it, quote, American culture couldn't be reached by just simple realism, it had to be a little nutty too, end quote. It's safe to say by now this goes not just for the U.S., but for the rest of the world in the year 2020. I can't wait to talk to George Saunders any minute now. George Saunders, welcome to Oslo and welcome to the House of Literature. We are five minutes away from the House of Literature in a podcast studio to record this with you. If it wasn't for the pandemic, we would have wanted to welcome you to the stage, to the Vergeland stage at, at the House of Literature. Um, and I hope that you will come when all this is over and talk to us live. I, I would love to. I've, I've never been to Oslo and I know it's beautiful and, I, and I'm looking forward to those days when we can travel freely again. You know, I always start this podcast with my guests asking them, what are you reading right now? You know, I, I'm teaching right now, so I'm reading a lot of student work. And then I just finished a book on the Russian short story. So I'm still kind of doing a little bit of uh, research and kind of mopping that up. So I've been reading a lot of the the 19th century Russians. Um, mm. And I'm kind of and, waiting for the next big reading project to begin. And which 19th century Russians are you reading? Well, this book is, in, I just concentrated on on seven stories by four writers. So it's Chekhov, uh, Turgenev, Gogol, and Tolstoy. Mm. So really for the last two years, I've just been reading <laughs> reading the same seven stories over and over again, hopefully with you know increasing intelligence and So now I'm kind of looking forward to breaking out of that and, and taking out something bigger. Well, before you do that, what what happens to these stories when you read them over and over again over so many years? Oh, they just get better. It's amazing. You know, I I um I had gone through this thing. Maybe a lot of us have where when I got a phone and started being a little addicted to the phone, I, I noticed my reading, not really my reading comprehension, but I would say like the the depth of my reading or the like the the uh, intensity of the images that came out of my reading 
uh, started being reduced. I was kind of, I felt like I would read those stories and kind of be skimming the top of them. So then when I started really analyzing them and reading them over and over again, suddenly they came to life again. So that was encouraging. I think, you know, that I could change the um, experience of reading by my discipline. Uh, but, the, you know, you, you, you read them and I, I, you can almost not believe that a human being put these little concentrated uh, artistic machines together. It's just, they, they just keep rewarding you over and over. Do you put your phone away when you read? I, it's, I usually I just forget it somewhere. That's my, my, one of my habits. Uh, but I do, I have, you know, taken, I, I have a little writing shed back in California where I usually work and I, I tend to just set it off to the side and, and, uh, and not touch it. Cause it's very, you know, it's, I think it's actually the big story of our time uh, underlying all this other stuff that's going on is this uh, addiction to this quick, um, quick source of fun and also the shallow nature of the fun that we get, you know, the, the uh, sort of ill-considered uh, nature of a lot of the stuff that we're reading every day. Can you say more about that? So I think what happens, is, I mean, I'm, again, this is all just me observing my own mind, but um, we know that these, these devices were designed to addict us. That's mm. now been admitted by the people who designed them. So we have this little source of sugar uh, that's always available to us. And when you click on it, you get something, uh, you know, generally speaking, you get something that was written quickly, uh, often with some kind of agenda, whether it's a corporate agenda or a political agenda. Uh, and what you don't get is that, you know, the piece of prose that's been worked over for months and months. And, you know, as a writer, my experience is if you work on a piece of prose over many months with sincere intent, this magical thing happens, which is a better version of you rises to the surface and starts speaking. And for me, that only happens through revision. Uh, I, I have a sort of a, I would say um, a certain dishonesty in my natural uh, occurrence, but then as I edit, I get more honest. So what we, what we are doing, I think, is infusing ourselves with shallow little information bursts that have an agenda, uh, as opposed to deep introspective you know, honest explorations. And I think, I mean, at least here in the States, I can literally see the way this is um, fueling the division. Uh, it's making the public discourse stupider and meaner. Uh, it's almost like we're all taking a drug. Uh, there's a, a parable of the poison well, everybody drinking from the same poison well. Uh, so I think this is not, you know, it, at one point I might've felt a little bit silly talking about literature as uh, or, or loss of literature as being a political force. But now I know it in my heart. That's what's happening here. And by literature, I don't necessarily just mean the great novels, but I mean the way of thinking and writing that uh, uh, understands that we are several people at once. We're many people at once. And we can access the shallow, mean-spirited person or the loving, deep, ambiguity, comfortable person. And the way the information that we put in uh, as we all know, as readers, it literally affects the person that you are. It's like a, a, a medicine. You you said something. You said that the the loss of literature as a potential political force. That's a rough statement, but can you or? And I, I think I agree yeah. with you, but can you say more about it? I mean, it, it's happened here in my lifetime, and I'm a person who's kind of a working class person who came to literature a little bit from the side and a little bit handicapped and. I've been struggling to keep up. So I, I kind of, um, I'm pretty sure about this. When, when we um, read a great novel or when we try to write a great novel or even try to write a, you know, a, a good novel, uh, we're basically doing a very complicated, empathetic experiment. We're, we're, we're saying, uh, okay, I'm going to put myself in somebody else's shoes for a while. And, you know, also we're doing it with an incredible, uh, resource of language that comes from rewriting, from revisiting a certain, from the writer revisiting a certain image over and over and over, trying to see, is there a more truthful way to say this? Uh, so my thought is that if we get in the habit of thinking in a literary way, that's exactly the same as saying we train ourselves in being more curious, more compassionate, more comfortable with ambiguity. So we, we actually just become a little more interested in the world and a little less sure of it, uh, you might say we become 
a little more, um, uh, in, we're actually more engaged in the world instead of trying to figure it out and then pronounce something about it. So I think that whole habit of thinking in this literary way uh, is also, it's a moral ethical habit. And, you know, for many generations, people just knew this, I think. It was, literature was held in reverence because it's a superpower. Uh, and I know here in the States, within my lifetime, it kind of got pushed off to the side in the same way that sort of, you know, jazz did. Like it's, oh, it's, yeah, it's great for the intellectuals to goof around with this little frivolous thing while the rest of us are making money and talking in sensible terms, you know. But now I, I really believe we're seeing the fruits of that way of thinking in, in the United States where the, the level of the discourse is so low and so literal uh, that there's no way that anything could be solved through it. You know, uh, we are talking today. It is the day after, or is it the same day that Trump was released from the hospital and photographed uh, without a mask outside the White House? I guess that was yesterday already. Uh, looking uh, sick and made up and drugged and triumphant uh, all at the same time. And And I woke up this morning, as I'm sure you did, to these these photographs, and I was had decided I wasn't going to even read that much news because I wanted to prepare for our conversation, <laughs> and um, I felt my attention was was like zero. Um, <laughs> I I was clicking, uh, looking at news all the time, and then I I, I felt hopeless, and then I felt. I wondered if I just sat down and cried for a while, could I just cry? Maybe that would help. And then I was thinking about the conversation that I was going to have with you and the title of this podcast that my namesake Lynn and I came up with together, which is How to Proceed. And I realized I'd never actually asked any of my guests that question, how to proceed. How do we proceed from here, from today? politically, intellectually, spiritually, personally. And I thought, I have to ask you this because I don't know how to proceed until this evening and certainly not, you know, <laughs> the next few weeks and months. I don't know how to do it. Do you? No, no. And I think that's maybe the first important thing that I'm learning to do is say, this is really happening fast and I'm not really as smart as I thought I was. And so... You know, I tell myself, let's just be a little humble about this and recognize how much I want to have a quick, easy answer. But there there aren't any, you know. But on, in a larger way, I think here, you know, in the States, we've kind of, well, speaking for myself, I've turned a corner because I've had, for the last four years, arguments with people near and dear to me and total strangers. And I consider myself a very persuasive person. Uh, and I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. I finally am starting to move into this position. Rather than saying, how can this be? You know, I'm trying to say, okay, thus it is. It is this way. There are 40% of Americans who who can look at those pictures you saw today and think, oh, what a hero, you know, and, I, and, I, uh, and I've met them. And so then I think we start thinking about the literary imagination And theoretically, the liter literary imagination is the thing that allows you to arrive in any circumstance, take a deep breath, smile, and be interested. You know, say, okay, so it, it, although it's hard for us to believe that the world has, you know, that our country has changed in this way, it really has. Or maybe, you know, maybe, and I suspect this is true, it was always like this in some way. And something recently happened to put us into this traumatic mode. But in other words, I guess I'm trying to, I'm giving myself a pep talk. I'm saying, okay, as a writer, your job is to be curious and interested and in a certain sense, positive in the sense that um, I'm going to try to enjoy the investigation. I'm going to, you know, open myself up to all the information, deny nothing, and then just see where I am. That's the, that's the aspiration, which so far I'm totally failing in, but. <laughs> <laughs> in your um Four years ago, you wrote an essay in The New Yorker about attending Trump rallies. In that essay, you wrote, an ungentleness gets into the air when Trump speaks, prompting the abandonment of certain social norms. 
And, you know, I was, I was intrigued by the word or wanted to ask you about the word ungentleness. It's, it's not a very common word, ungentleness. And I wanted to it know... Might not, it might not even be a word. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a word that I wrote down and I wrote it down when I read it many years ago. And then I read it over again and I, I wrote it down again. And I wanted to know what you mean by ungentleness. And you are also an author who talks about kindness and writes about kindness. And so I was also wondering, is ungentleness the opposite of kindness, or, or are we in two different worlds here? No, I think that's right. I mean, to me, what, what I noticed hearing him then, four years ago, and, and hearing him the other day in the debate... You, you mean Trump? Yes, Trump. It's just that there's uh, there's a very you know it's a it's a very small moment that we mostly take for granted. Uh, so so for example, in the debate the other day, um, Joe Biden brought up his son uh, Bo, who passed away and who was a veteran. Okay, so most of us have at that moment, even if you're opposed to Joe Biden, you have a moment where you say, "Ah, oh, yes, that young man did you know go to war and he." And he's recently passed away. There's a pause there where you acknowledge that, even if you if you don't feel it, you know, habitually in good manners, you pause. Trump just jumped right off to the, the topic of the other son who's had some addiction issues. Many of us who've had addiction issues in our family would think, go gentle there. You, you know, you don't. But but Trump doesn't have that impulse. And uh, what I see is he brings that out in his followers as well. You know, you hear them chanting lock her up first about hillary but now about an, a young woman wonderful young woman uh congresswoman from minnesota uh it's very strange and it, now i almost would edit that word ungentleness because it's gone way past that now but these but the thing is once once somebody gets on the national stage and is as mean as he is it opens up all kinds of boxes in hearts everywhere you know but including liberal hearts the the the, the things that were sent out after when, when Trump was diagnosed were really quite cruel. And I, I thought they were kind of terrible. But this is what happens when somebody steps up and models ungentleness. Uh, all these Pandora's boxes get opened, you know. What would you call, you said you would edit out that word now and because it's gone past that. What, what is the word now? Well, it's, it's meanness, really. I mean, it's sort of a, a, um, a self-justified or, or how do I say it? You know, what a lot of this, these Trumpy people do, they'll say or advocate for things that are mean and then couch it in a kind of a jocularity or a kind of a swagger. Uh, so that's gone now beyond ungentleness uh, to something a little more aggressive. And, it, you know, it's like anything else. It's, it's, it's an evil attitude that couches itself in virtuous trappings. So, the you know, one of the the feelings you get in a Trump crowd is this idea that to ever complain or critique or second guess or analyze is weak, that you just have to blunder forward. And you see that in the, in the response to this illness. I mean, to say, I understand COVID now, don't be afraid of it is such a ludicrous, hurtful thing, you know, to the two, hundreds of millions, hundreds of thousands of people who died and the millions of their family. So th this I think is the, the liberal conundrum is that, you know, if somebody <laughs> comes into your dinner party and it's all going nicely and he drops his pants. Now, the first reaction is shock. Now, we're good at that. And then we expect the person to pull his pants up. But in this case, the person drops his pants. There's a sh universal shock reaction and he doesn't do anything. Now, what do we do? You know, and I think that's the paralysis of the kind of liberal mind is that having expressed our objections reasonably with facts uh, and then it's still ignored, you know, then you're in some really new territory. And I've experienced this personally with so many people I know, you lay out the facts, you make a cogent argument, you assume some kind of idea of history that has a certain uh, gentleness built into it and you're rebuffed. So that's, that's puzzling, you know, and scary. Give an example of, of a situation like that. You said you've experienced it personally. I mean, well, I have, you know, family members and friends that are big Trump supporters and I love them and I trust them with my life. And yet when we get into the discussion, 
well, I'll be generous here and say we both occupy the political positions that we live in, you know, that we, from our media influence and so on. But from my perspective, these people are being poisoned by right-wing media. And the, that right-wing media has a kind of defense built into it, which is if I say to somebody, well, look, the New York Times says this, they discount the New York Times. And in fact, if, if, if the source is bringing a fact that's contrary to the Trumpian view, the source is automatically discounted. And then there's also sometimes a movement to a kind of false equivalence, which is, well, all politicians are corrupt or all the media is rotten, you know. So it's really kind of a, you know, I'm at the end of my rope with trying to do that. I've just given up. And and um, so so then again, though, the writer, the writing writer's mind says, okay, how did we get to this place? What are the forces at work that are causing this, this really, you know, unnegotiable divide? It's new. It's not, I mean, we didn't, I didn't have these kind of fights even with Bush or about Bush. They were a little more humane and a little, there was some sense that there was, uh, you know, that enlightenment principles were at work, but now it's something very different. So, you know, it's interesting to think uh, that in one person's lifetime, this gulf can appear and now it's almost unbridgeable. It's amazing. You mentioned the the, the writer mind or, or how, as a writer, how do you deal with this in, in fiction or can fiction deal with this and can it deal with it in real time or do we need it, you know, do we need another five years or 10 years because fiction and literature is slow yeah. to, to write about this time? Right. Well, I can only speak for myself, but I can't do the topical thing very well every so often. But really, my, my thought is we have to recognize that fiction is a different it's in a different game. Uh, it's a deeper game. It, it probably, you know, uh, it, it concerns itself, I think, with fundamental issues. And so, for, you know, I have to sort of say fiction is I have to set it aside a little bit and let it take its time, you know. In the same way that if you were writing a piece of music, you know, you 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 might want to not be too anxious to make it topical because you might undercut it. Um, but at the same time, I'm thinking, well, whatever it is that's happening right now, it's actually not new. I mean, it's it's in human nature, it's in our neurology, it's in our culture, cultural tendencies. So uh, I feel like if I can just write fiction the way I always have, which is very slowly with a lot of revision and with theoretically uh, a minimum of agenda. I don't know what I'm trying to do. I don't know what it's about. I don't have any ax to grind. I'm just trying to make it come alive on the page. If I do that, I think, well, whatever is going on right now will find its way in. Um, and it might find its way in in a more uh, universal way in a more time. So for me, I put up kind of a firewall and say, when I'm writing fiction, I, I just have to concentrate on that story with no attention to the outside world. That's you know. You've said, actually, several places that I've heard and read interviews with you. Um, you said that it's a radical approach, writing, and, and it's trusting that intuitive moment that is really hard to talk about. Uh, and in, in Paris Review, you said something similar. You said, the biggest thing I've learned about writing is that we tend to underestimate and marginalize the irrational, intuitive aspect of it. The difference between a so-so writer and a good one, or a good one and a great one, is in the quality of the intuitive decisions she's able to make at speed. So m many mentions of intuition and the intuitive there and I you know my father was an artist and he also he always talked about intuition and using your intuition and when I do it when I talk about with my students using my intuition it's you know my male students will sometimes say oh you mean like women's intuition you know intuition <laughs> has a kind of Especially if maybe a woman says it, it the word intuition has connotations uh, that is not what I mean or what you mean. And, but I want you to explain the way you use the word intuition and intuitive when you are writing and why that is what you have to trust. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, this is something I really believe in because I discovered it 
just naturally without even trying to. And it's simply that, um, and again, I, I can't really explain why this would be the case, but if I um, approach a work of fiction with a plan, it never turns out well. It it just, it at the best, you know, I execute the plan. And there's something disappointing in that for the reader because there's something condescending to it. You know, if I, if I, um, or on the other hand, if I just make a paragraph and then scan it uh, with no, you know, attachments or anything, just trying to see what about it I like and what about it I don't like and where, you know, then just start making the tiniest adjustments to the text. You put a semicolon in instead of a comma, you change this word, you insert a new phrase. And that moment right there to me is the whole game. Um, what is the relation of your mind to the boards on the page? How how good are you at finding the tiny places where it's not what you would like it to be and then making an adjustment? And it almost can't be spoken about because it's literally just like rock climbing or something where you're following your instincts. But now from experience, what I found is if a person, if I do that over and over and over for months or even years on some projects, the thing itself starts to get smarter than me. It's It becomes kinder, it becomes more witty, it becomes... And, and what's actually happening is I'm imagining you, Lynn, reading that book, and I'm trying to respect you by my edits. I'm trying not to be repetitious. I'm trying not to tell you anything you already know, you know, and so on. Uh, so there, to me, that's something very hopeful about the way that fiction works. It also says something about our innate abilities because, you know, whatever it is I'm accessing in that moment is not something we hear a lot about in the West. But I know with more certainty than I know anything that it's real because I've used it for over 20 years now, you know. So that's exciting to me that we we might just be located in a culture that privileges linear thought and reason and material materialism. Um, but we may be denying ourselves this whole other set of gifts that artists have known about forever, you know. Um, yeah, so that's really my whole shift in, in, in teaching is that you're to become a better artist, you have to be in better touch with that little tiny voice in your head that knows what it likes and what it doesn't, and then get better at listening and, and um, exporting that opinion onto the page. And then everything else, you know, your theme and your politics and your plot and all that stuff, character development, that all comes very naturally out of this um you know, attention to the to the phrase. So for me, as kind of a you know a, a weirdly educated person, I was an engineering student and uh, was always kind of uh, intimidated by literary uh, language, literary theory, and literary criticism. Uh, this was a real lifesaver because all I had to do was be in touch with what I thought of the prose at a given moment, and then the you know sort of the doors of the castle swung open. I just reread Lincoln and the Bardo, and it was even more f powerful reading it these last few weeks. Oh, good. It, um, it felt so as if it was speaking directly to, well, not only directly to, to me and my struggles, but to our society and, and, and to the world and to our times. And what almost always makes me, I read it twice, what makes me almost cry with that book is the form, is how you've formed it with the, the chorus, the chorus of voices living and dead. I want to ask about ghosts later, because I know you don't like that word, but but I, first I want to ask you about form. And you talked about, you know, you, you talk about revision a lot. You've talked about, about it to me here today. You know, is revision... Is that making the form? I mean, when you put in that semicolon and take away that word, and you and you, is that is that when you start creating the form? Yes, and and the same kind of. I guess I would say I'm using the same feeling of intuition to decide on the form. So in this case, um, it's a kind of a long story how how it came to be. But I'll tell you one moment of, of an example of how intuition makes form. Uh, I had these entries, these little monologues that the whole book was made up of these little speeches. And some of them were 
the ghosts in the graveyard talking, and some of them were from historical documents. So for a while there, I had the um, the ghosts were I thought of them as sort of theatrical. So they had the the name of the ghost at the top before the speech. And then the other ones, the historical documents, I thought, well, how would we cite those? That, that would normally come at the bottom, at the end of the quote. So for a couple of weeks, I had this sort of mixed bag of, of headings, you know, totally small thing. It's almost typographical, you know, but it just bothered me. It, the way it, when I look at it on the page, it just bothered me because sometimes you'd have one quote with the heading above and on the same page, another quote with the heading below. It just offended me. It offended my aesthetic sense. So one day, kind of my whole day's work was just to go, oh, wait a minute. I'm going to put them all at the bottom. All the all the citations come at the bottom, even the ghosts. Um, and it was really just intuition, playful, uh, eliminating something that was bothering me, you know, almost like, you know, moving something on your desk to turn in a different direction or something. Uh, so that was just intuition, playful, uh, presentational. But then as soon as I did that, uh, the book read differently. And one of the things people talk about, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively, is that, you know, you can read a whole speech and not know who's saying it until you get to the bottom. Uh, to me, that's kind of great. You know, like if you're in a graveyard and you've just died, as Willie Lincoln has, you're a little disoriented. And I think that sort of models that a little bit. But that was not the intention. The intention was just to, you know, to give myself a little fun on that one day. So, yeah, so everything is intuitive and you know of course sometimes rational mind moves in that's totally fine um but i'm a little wary of it you know if i if i start deciding on a rational basis i i'm a little bit uh you know a, a little wary so so yeah intuition at every single level um yeah you you've said something um I think this is from Paris Review as well, but you've said similar things in other interviews. You say, but here's what I find interesting. There's something that happens in the moment of creation of a good sentence or a good swath of sentences that feels like the dropping away of self. Somebody else shows up and that person is better than the normal everyday you. I'm guessing that the various approaches to writing are ultimately all about getting to that moment, that moment of spontaneity And then you say, and self-negation, and self-negation. And, you know, a lot of writers talk about this, and, and I do too, that self-negation is a kind of ultimate goal for good writing. But can you explain what it is, what giving up the self and, you know, self-negation is in writing? Because, and I think people have a hard time understanding it, and I certainly have a hard time explaining it because so much of writing is also opening up of the self and questioning the self and using the self yes. and abusing the self and twisting the self and revealing the self. So, you know, people, yeah. well, writers are pretty self-obsessed people. You might not <laughs> <Yeah>. be, but, <laughs> but, oh, yeah. but, but then at the same time, you say very clearly, but The goal is is to lose the self. And actually, in the first interview we had here with, with uh, the writer Ali Smith, she talked about the same thing. It's about the loss of self. It's not about yeah. finding yourself, but it's the loss of self. So can you speak to that? Yeah, I think maybe the, the problem is that we use the word self to, you know, to cover several different things. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's something like this. Let's say that your, your kid is, comes to see you and she's distressed about something. Um, Okay, so at that moment, you because you're a human being, you you have your your mind is going, and it's full of projections. So you think, oh my God, she's distressed because I must have failed her in some way, or she's distressed because you know you're supplying reasons and your uh, your mind is very active because it wants to solve the problem. But so far, you haven't heard a word she said because that part of your mind is so busy. Now, if we could get that part of the mind to be quiet then suddenly, the, I mean, just neurologically, the brain has a lot more room for data collection. And you notice, oh, wait a minute, she's holding her left wrist. Ah, you know, or whatever, you notice something about her facial expression or her tone of voice. And then most importantly, you notice what she actually starts to tell you. And when she starts to talk, again, your projections all come alive. But if that wasn't the case, you 
really hear what her concern was. So I think in a way, in this model, the text is your child. The, the text has certain things it wants to do. Now, why that should be the case, I don't really know. But I always say the text has a natural energy. Uh, you know, you've what it, the, the first three pages of its existence are causing the reader to ask certain questions and so on. So your job is to be quiet-minded so you can hear what your text is actually saying. And then you can sort of lead it, lead it on. But if your mind is active and busy and has a big plan for the text, yeah, I want to show the world that I'm against Trump, for example, or I want to show the world how compassionate I am, or I want to show the world what I know about hunting in Montana, <laughs> then that those projections are are cloaking the actual energy of the text. So I think what happens is the self that we, what we call the self, our day-to-day -day self, if we examine it, it's mostly made up of our thoughts, you know, our monkey mind. And then some of the world is coming in through that monkey mind and it's also being reinterpreted via that monkey mind. If that, if that part thing goes quiet, then I would say there's another self that is there all the time. And it's actually, truer it's it's actually more i don't know i prefer it uh but of course all of that mess together is what we might call a third self so i think it's, it's just for me it's a matter of getting the mind to quiet down so i can listen to the actual text and then wait for this better person to sort of arrive and what the better person does is leave evidence of himself on the page you know you, you i can read something i wrote and go wow that's pretty that's better than me that's better than that's more generous than i am you know so I don't know if that makes sense, but absolutely. Um, you have spoken about um, that you are a practicing Buddhist. Um, both you and your wife Paula Saunders, who is also a novelist, you are both Buddhists. And how does reading about Buddhism and, and exploring Buddhism inform your work? Well, I think the main thing was, I, I think I was a Buddhist before I knew what it was. And that was through my writing, like uh, this thing I'm describing where, you know, at some point I had a breakthrough of um, realizing that instead of having to know my intention and then force it upon you, I, I was going to discover my intention by this method we've been discussing. And that really is, I, I, you know, in retrospect, it's kind of a form of meditation, which is to say, rather than deciding what this moment is and fixing it. I'm going to try to be really quiet and see what it is, you know, uh, and that's really, that's the essence of, of writing, I think. And so I think, um, since then, you know, we've, we've been, pra I've been practicing sometimes lazily, sometimes less lazily. Uh, and I just find it's a, it's a complete, um, beautiful conversation between meditation practice and writing. They're, they, they are the same thing, I think, uh, but I wouldn't mistake writing for meditation, but they but they work on the same basis, I think. So uh, in a certain way, when when we read, when we when we read a literary text, that's exactly like reading the world. You know, uh, it, what's the state of mind you're in when you're reading? It's you're reading a book, you're reading life. Uh, so I think there's a lot there's a lot of lot to be learned in both directions. How are they? different because I thought of my meditation when you were describing writing um, but how how is meditation and writing very different well I think I mean actually I think they're not except that you know when you're writing the object of meditation is the text so you're just looking at that and trying to I, I'm basically trying to imitate a first-time reader if I, you know if I hadn't read this thing a million times what would I think of it um, I think when you're doing real meditation, especially when you're doing it in a tradition and with teachers and so on, it's a much higher thing. And you're uh, because the object of the meditation is, I suppose, your mind. Or you know, I, I don't know enough to really say. I, I but and also when you when I'm writing, it's there's a lot going on. There's certainly that kind of this kind of pure, lovely thing I'm talking about. But there's also, of course, this other loop of ambition and aspiration going on. Uh, you know, so. Uh, the most enjoyable thing for me is to just notice that within a single writing session, there's so many different valences, you know, there's sometimes when really I am not there. It's just pure reaction. And other times when you have a moment of pure reaction and then the little voice will go, Oh, that's pretty good. You know, <laughs> the New Yorker is going to love that. <laughs> and, and, and I'll probably get to be interviewed by Lynn Ullman. You know, I mean, the, that mind also is always, is always going. So 
I think maybe the, the wonderful thing is to go, yeah, of course, of course, my mind is just what it is, and I don't have to feel bad about it, but I do have to kind of manage it. And this is something I tell my students is, you know, you, many of, of uh, many good young writers, I think, have a probably healthy dose of uh, self-distrust. So they'll identify some part of their mind that they don't like, they're too ambitious, they're whatever it is. Uh, my message to them is let's just not disavow anything that you are. Every Whatever your mind is, let's just accept it because you didn't do it. You know, you didn't make yourself. So then if we're going to try to be artists, we have to use everything that we have. And especially we have to use the strong energies, you know. So if a student really wants to be famous, I'm like, good, that's totally fine, you know. Or if a student really doesn't want to be famous, that's fine too. Uh, it, so... The exciting thing to me about art is that it says, okay, you don't get to deny any part of yourself. You don't get to cut it off or amputate it or truncate it. You have to accept it all. And then you have to do a kind of a skillful judo on those parts of yourself to trick them into making beautiful work. So a lot of what we do is I call it self-gaming, like where you're just saying, I noticed this about my creative self. Okay, then let's use that you know, without any shame or any kind of um, com conflicted feelings. Let's just use that. So in that way, again, I think it's somewhat like there seem to be some crossover lessons for life. You know, you're not going to totally remake yourself. You're not going to eradicate some part of your personality, but you can repurpose it um, if you're, you know, thoughtful about it. I was reading uh, both your Trump essay uh, from four years ago and the interview in Paris Review, sort of in concert and well in the in the Trump essay um, just eerie to read today um, you write Trump is not trying to persuade detail or prove he's trying to thrill agitate be liked be loved here and now and since I was reading the Paris Review at the same time where you talk about writing and where you also say something like, when I'm writing, I'm feeling something like, I want to entertain you for 20 pages. I want to keep you reading. Actually, I want you not to be able to stop reading. And I thought, <laughs> is, uh, when you say, I want you to love me. <laughs> I want you to love me. I want you to like me. Uh, I want to entertain you. Um, so this criticism against Trump that we all look at and we all or not all of us, many of us look at it in horror, but isn't a lot of the same things that you say drive Trump, isn't it also what can drive a writer? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's where we have to go the next step and say, okay, so let's just say, let's say that probably everybody wants to be loved to this, you know, to, to some extent. Um, and then we say, well, for what? And I think those of us who have chosen a certain path, whether it's art or medicine or, or, or whatever, we say, I, I want to be loved for being virtuous, let's say, or for being skillful. Uh, and then, but even there, you know, I, I've certainly been in a place where I've said all the right things. I want to be loved for writing good books. And then I write a good book, I hope, and the world likes me for it. Uh, but even then there's still danger because you could, uh, you could let that make you insane. You know, you, you could just, continually be running after that sugar buzz. So I think the thing is that to live a virtuous life, you never get to go on autopilot and you never get to switch off, you know, and hide behind your maxim, you know? Uh, and so I think with Trump, part of the problem is he wants to be loved and he doesn't care how or why he, he, he just, you know, and so there's this constant turning of every subject to himself, which, you know, in a person in real life, we would just recognize it as a kind of a, a deep flaw, you know, a kind of a failure of maturation. So, but again, the, the point is, I think that we never get to, all human beings are probably fueled by the same energy. I would say so. I don't think there's too many, there are sociopaths, but mostly there aren't. So, you know, uh, I want to be loved. Great. Everyone does. Now, what do you do with that? You know, and, and can you stay vigilant until the end? You know, so uh, if I find myself, And I do every day, you know, I'm kind of in constant conversation with my own ego and my own desire to uh, be somebody, you know. Uh, I guess the thing is you never get to stop wondering. And I think he stopped wondering many, many years ago. 
There was this beautiful thing said about Lincoln and the Bardo, and it was in an interview, and now I can't actually remember which interview it was, and we'll put it up in the show notes when I do remember it. Um, <laughs> but it, it was said, empathy is the joining of memory and voice. And I thought that was so beautiful, the joining of memory and voice, uh, that that, um, huh. that, that describes. That? I don't think you said it. I think someone you spoke to said it. And it was yeah, I wish a, I had said it. That's pretty good. Let's say that I said it. Uh, we'll say that you said it. We'll say that. Yeah. But I, I think you spoke to it eloquently huh. in that interview that I heard and that I'll have to try to remember. But, but this, this idea of memory and voice and that that together is, is, is empathy. Um, do you agree? Or can you add something to that? That empathy is in the joining of memory and voice? And especially, I guess, in, the Link, in Lincoln and the Bardo, but, but in writing in general. Hmm. Well, I, I do like that quote, and I can tell it it, it didn't come from me because I can't quite I can't quite say more about it. I, I think it's true. Um, the, the only thing I, that makes me think is that in that book, one of the one of the challenges was to make all those voices. It's like I think 166 or something. And so the the truth of that quote is that I I whenever I was trying to make up a a person, uh, I would try to like them first. You know, try to try, even if it was a very bad person, try to say, or, or like might be too strong a word, but I would try to inhabit them and say, okay, let's imagine that I, George, was born in a different life in which I was born a slave or in which I was born a slaveholder or in which I was born a, uh, a woman in the 19th century who was smarter and more powerful than her husband, but couldn't ever get any power. And so now that, that little wager is kind of what fiction is based on is that you, Everybody is contained in you, at least to the limits of the form. You know, you, you don't have you don't have to really be them, but you have to sort of, you know, play them for a couple of minutes. So that that was interesting to say, start from that assumption and then actually be able to make some number of of uh, separate people. Um, so I think that's empathy for me was can I give the character a specific memory that you know, and and can I then express it in a a specific voice? I guess I don't know. Mm. It's a good mm. quote, though. Mm. <laughs> um, a lot of the people who have a specific memory and a specific voice in uh, Lincoln and the Bardo, and in and in much of your writing, are these ghosts that we talked a little bit about. And I read that you don't like the word ghost, and I. Th- Oh, no, I like it. I just for for this book, I tried to keep the word out of it because I wanted there to be some, you know, sort of positive confusion about what these things were exactly. Mm-hmm. I didn't want anybody picturing me in white sheets, but right. they're they are ghosts, but they're kind of you know for the purposes of the book, I just held that word out a little bit because they're in the between space between life and death. It's really or, right, or, or they're dead, but they're not. They haven't. They're well. Explain what Bardo is. Well, I mean, the, it, it, it really just means transitional space, and it's usually used to mean that time between death and the next rebirth. Uh, but really, I mean, and, and originally when I started to write the book, I thought, okay, I'm going to study the Tibetan Book of the Dead and get it exactly right. And then I realized that that's, I don't have enough years left in my life to understand that beautiful <laughs> text. And, and so I, I gave myself kind of permission to make up a kind of afterlife that I call the, the Bardo. Uh, but it's basically my own rules. And um, so it's more of a, I guess, a, you know, a metaphorical afterlife than any kind of uh, attempt to be true to the, uh, the real one. But, but the point in there is that, and I think this vaguely echoes the Buddhist epistemology is that if you want to know what your death is going to be like, you just look at right now, you know, what's your mind doing? Uh, and especially I think, you know, imagine your mind right now, but if you were in a lot of pain and you were very afraid, you know, so the habits that we cultivate in life will follow us. And then um, in one of the texts, there was this quote that, you know, your your mind after death is like a wild horse that's let off the tether. So it's some exaggerated experience of our, our mind. So that was kind of the, the jumping off place. And then in, in a way, I kind of found that I was doing a lot of traditional ghost ideas, you know, this idea that a, a person who died traumatically doesn't realize it. Um, uh, a person who is, uh, who, you know, who, who leaves this life when something important to them has been unresolved 
is going to continue to worry about it afterwards, you know, so. Ibsen's ghosts, uh, or Ibsen's ghosts is translated as ghosts, um, but actually the the word in Norwegian is gengangere, which is slightly different than the word spökelse, which means, spökelse means ghost, but gengangere <laughs> means also the dead, uh, but the direct translation of, of gengangere would be the again walkers. So oh, they're wow. doing wow. the same thing over and over and over again. I mean, it's an eternal recurrence, the again walkers. And I, I thought about the the dead in in Lincoln and the Bardo a little bit like that, like again walkers. Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, I, I this is... Um when the book came out, I got a you know a lot of chances to talk about it. And one of the things that I discovered that I'd forgotten was that um, the book had a source in a, a reporting trip I did had done a few years before. So I went to Fresno, California, and lived in this homeless camp, uh, kind of incognito for about a week, which was really terrifying and you know kind of difficult and beautiful. Mm. But in there, I noticed that a lot of the the people who were living there for the homeless people uh, would see me on Wednesday and tell me a certain story and then see me again on Thursday and tell me the same exact story, <laughs> mm-hmm. almost word for word. Mm. And um, that was amazing. And I, and I think part of it was stress, but also part of it was they, they were struggling to hold on to uh, a pre-homeless identity or they were struggling to find out a way to explain their presence in that place. So that definitely carried forward to the, said the Bardo, this sense that, you know, uh, you know, I know, I think we do, I think you see it in very old people also, they'll tend to, to keep trying to build their identity back up again with, with repetitive stories, which, so I think that's just human, a human thing and um, kind of sad and kind of sweet also. We were talking about memory and the joining of memory and voice. And one of the things we do in this podcast is that we ask writers to ask the next writer a question. So Mm -hmm. it's a kind of, you know, so that we get a kind of conversation going between many writers who might know each other or might not know each other. I was supposed to talk to the American writer poet and essayist Mary Rufel before I spoke to you, but everybody got a cold last week and we had to stay home and isolate and get tested and everything. Everyone's fine, but we couldn't do the interview. But I have the question for Mary Rufel because she sent the question in advance. The question from Mary Rufel to you is, and I'm going to read exactly what she said. Okay. And here is my question for Saunders. As we have met, I wanted to address him as George and hope his name is included in the question. George, so many writers address questions of memory. I was wondering what you had for lunch last Tuesday. (laughs) I have no idea. I have no idea. My my memory doesn't work that way at all. I don't have... um... I mean, I have a pretty good memory of, chi- of childhood, I, I'm, as I'm finding out. I've been corresponding with an old friend, and it's incredible the things that we both remember. But I don't, I don't have um, my memory doesn't work that way, uh, and I would never, and I never use that particular kind of memory. You know, uh, if I for, so, for example, if my character is going to have lunch, that lunch should have relevance to the story that surrounds it. So, whether that lunch actually happened or not in the real world, I don't care but i do i'm an advocate of keeping your eyes open so that when you need to fill an aesthetic spot like that you have a a wide roster of choices you know but i don't remember i I have no idea but you said you had memory of now realizing of childhood uh do you have what what kind of childhood memories are they of food or other kinds of moments or sadness or joy or yeah, that's so interesting. They're actually of social relations or, or of, of hierarchical things. Um, I, I think, you know, I'm not sure, and I'd love to hear you talk about this, but I think people who are creative, I've noticed that we tend to have very novelistic constructions of experience as young people. So, for example, I, I can, and I think one of the reasons I can remember so much is that I was, I had the structure. I had the structure of, you know, the social relations within the school, 
the, the, the town sort of structure. And then I think when you put memories into a structure, they stay longer. So my, my sense is when I talk to some of my friends who aren't artistically inclined, they're kind of amazed that I can remember these things. And when I talk to other friends who are artists, they have the same, almost like a, um, their childhood was the first novel they ever read, and it was so vivid that they've never forgotten it. So for me, it's mostly things like, um, gosh, I mean, uh, okay, so one thing I was talking to a friend about was when we were in seventh grade, we went on a Christmas caroling class trip. So it's kind of the first time we'd ever been out together in public, and also we were Catholic kids, so we were all wearing street clothes, which was sort of unusual. We weren't wearing uniforms. And I remember us, you know, going from house to house and the kind of exuberance of, the, of that release, you know. And uh, and then we were being very tricky because we were sometimes instead of Christmas carols, we were singing rock songs. We thought we were very clever. But that, but that was that's such a strong memory to me. But some of the people who were there that night that I talked about, they just no, nah, I don't. We might have done that. I don't remember. So it's it's some kind of novelistic imagining, I think, that then causes those memories to to stay, you know. Do you remember which rock songs you were singing? There was uh, that one by the Guess Who called Share the Land. You know that? Uh, maybe I'll be there to shake your hand. Maybe I'll be there to share the land when that they'll be given away when we all live together. We thought that was very edgy. I seem to remember it. We're going to have to find that and maybe play it in the extra material. It's any, a good one. It's any a good other one. songs? Yeah. For some reason, we were singing Black Magic Woman by, ah, by Santana. Yeah. I, don't, I have no <laughs> idea what. A very 70s vibe. But, you know, I have, I have a question for Mary that I would like to ask her. It's just, Absolutely. Here's a question. Here's a question. Can she, okay, so if she could remember some of her earliest work that she would consider not her best now because she's grown past it. What's, what, what changed between that early beginning work and the beautiful work she does now? Because I think she's one of our greatest poets. So what's the nature of, the, of what she's learned in, the, in, in that interval? I'm certainly going to pass that question on to her. I'm going to be talking to her in two days. Uh, and and please I, pass on my admiration, too. She's, she's wonderful. I will. We're going to pass on all of what you just said. But I also want to, to give that question right back to you. When you consider your earlier work uh, that you now have gone past, what changed? Yeah. The, well, the biggest difference was that in the, that early work, I, I would hold... Uh, a hero up in my mind or an exemplar and then just try to do that. So Hemingway was big for me and then replaced by several other idols. But um, there was a sense of, I'm going to, I know what art is. I know what it has to do. And now I'm going to do it to you, dear reader. So just sit there while I do it, you know, that kind of thing. And so in that early work, it was, there was no humor. Uh, I had a kind of young, uh, working class persons, how do I say it? Okay, I associate this with working class intellectuals, would be, which is a kind of a, a very humorless, droning, control freak quality. You know, uh, it was very much for me a moral enterprise. I like Ayn Rand a lot. Uh, it was a way of controlling things. And therefore, it was, I was always taking out the confusing tonalities. So there was no self doubt. There was no class awareness. There was no nothing funny going on. Everything was the, the author was presenting a world in which he was completely the master of that world. You know that kind of thing. Then when I started writing by this method that we've been talking about, where I, I tried to not be so controlling, and then all these other things started getting in there that were more ambiguous and confusing and fun. Uh, so I think that's the, the big difference is that the the later works are are uh more spontaneous and they feel less controlled although ultimately they're they're every bit as controlled so that something like that it, it had to do with the process we talked about at the beginning of of being open to whatever the story wants to do instead of trying to impose your own structure on it uh now we're on uh, on this line of questioning i wanted to also ask if you had a question for Edwidge Danticat, whose uh, memoir or essay, The Art of Death, Writing the Final Story, just blew me away when I read it. And I said, we have to have her on the podcast, and we will have her on the podcast. And I was wondering if you had a question for her. Hmm. Well, okay. I, 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 when I interview people, I love to ask them, uh, when was the very first moment that you, in retrospect, uh, knew you were a writer? 
Or what was the first moment looking back at it where you can see, oh, that's a writerly person right there. So the earliest thing she can remember that would make us think, oh, that kid's going to be a writer. That's a good question. Because she's kind of a prodigy. I, I love her as well. And, tell, and please give her my greetings. She's an old friend. I will absolutely pass that question on. And, you know, finally, I, I, I want to, we're, we're, we're living in the, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of, well, we're soon going to have the election where, well, everything, the environment is, is, I don't even know where the environment is. Um, has your writing and, and reading changed this year, this year, 2020, have, have, have things changed the way you write, the way you read, the way you think, the way you hope? Yes. I, well, I noticed, you know, I was working on that Russian book, and in there, that was a real refuge because I, I resolved early not to let anything topical in and just to really concentrate on those stories. And that was beautiful because having, giving myself that sort of rule, I could come in and I could just... Uh, do my best to tell the truth about those stories as, as it occurred to me. So that was really nice because it was just like putting up a big wall and saying, world, stay out. Um, in my fiction, I noticed I've, I finished uh, three stories during this sort of period, I guess. And the, I, it's sort of sweet because I can see the stories really trying to be political. They're agitated like I am and they're unhappy and they feel that we're at the end of something. But also they, they've got the discipline to in most cases, to not do it overtly. So I think what I, there's a kind of a wild energy in them that seems very discontent uh, because I prohibited them from, <laughs> from being directly political. So they're just like animals in a cage, you know. Uh, but the thing that it, it made me think, and you mentioned something like this earlier when you talked about the form of that Lincoln book. Um, I, I think we have to maybe in this time remember that art is positive not because of what it spits out at the end, you know, not because of its message, but because of the way it proceeds. You know, if a, if a work of art is overflowing with energy and with human life and it's been beautifully organized to contain that energy and present it, that, that's actually what sends us out of the theater or out of the book happy. You know, it doesn't, it can, like Flannery O'Connor is a very dour writer, but I always leave her stories full of life and happiness. So I think that's the thing is, even if we're in this dark time, which we undeniably are, um, a work of art can still be a celebration of something uh, through its form, through its uh, discipline, through its the you know, sort of virtuosity of its creator. Uh, and even if the, you know, the sausage that gets spits out at the end is a bit of bad news, we're doomed, you know, um, or people are shitty, whatever it is. The, the process by which the sausage got made can be a celebration, you know. Uh, and also, you know, in a certain way, I, I think, well, I'm 61 years old. I, I have been spoiled rotten in this world. We all have, I think, by the, imagine the incredible order that's, you know, at least on the surface has been uh, enacted during our lifetimes. You know, you could actually look to the government and it's run by relatively sensible people generally, you know. Uh, you could, you could imagine that the world would still be here 300 years from now. What a blessing it was to imagine that, you know, but here we are, you know, we're, it's still a beautiful world. We're still thinking energetic people. So I think part of the, from my way of thinking, part of our obligation is to, is to not be stupidly hopeful, but also not be stupidly despairing, you know? which for me means kind of pulling in my boundaries a little bit. And if I get up in the morning and I find myself thinking about the devastation of, you know, the, our world, I'm a less powerful person. So if I pull the boundaries in a little bit and say, okay, let's first get ourselves together and be thankful for this moment and try to be really in it, then all the other battles that come my way, I can deal with them better. That's the, that's the theory. I, I don't do it. I didn't do it today. I got up this morning and got on my phone and read the news and, <laughs> you know, collapsed in a heap, but we can have good intentions anyway. George Saunders, we're going to ask you to read and we're going to post that as extra material for our listeners. But before that, I want to say thank you so much for joining me here in Oslo, five minutes away from the Literature House. It's been incredible talking to you, and I'm grateful. I feel a little m more hopeful now, I think. 
Um, I hope so. <laughs> but I want you to promise me something that you will come to Oslo soon. I will, and I think we'll be we'll have a great time. And I can sense in you a friend already. And uh, and thank you for doing what you're doing. You know, I think it's so. Um, you know, it's. I think one of the lessons of a book when you read a book, it's just that there's somebody out there who's like you. You're not alone. You might feel alone, but you're not. And you know that because your mind is. Uh, interacting with that distant person's mind. And that person might be even dead. You know, that person might have written that story in a, a different language originally. And nevertheless, your minds are in contact. So I think that's the other thing. You know, we literature doesn't have to solve a problem, but it, it does a lot of work. But just reminding her, uh, the reader, that she's uh, beloved to the writer and vice versa. Thank you so much, George Saunders. Poyensin, uh, as we say in. In Norwegian, which means uh, we'll see each other again. And uh, yes, I will. just want to say thank you. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. This podcast was produced by the House of Literature in Oslo. Tune in for our next episode of How to Proceed when Lynn Ullmann is joined by Mary Rufel. And please check out our show notes for links to some of the things Lynn and George Saunders talked about.